You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. I'm starting out this week's episode with an apology. Last week, we began our bird's-eye view of the Bible, which included a summary of the various sections that the Bible is traditionally divided into. Now, it's come to my attention since then that I referenced a whole lot of different places, people, and events that you might not be familiar with. The whole point of this podcast, at least in this early stage, is for it to be accessible for beginners. Frankly, if you understood every reference in last week's summary, you probably didn't need the summary to begin with. Conversely, if you really are new at Christianity, you probably need the story before I go telling you how the story was written down. So, to rectify that, this week I'm going to tell the story of the Bible from start to finish. I'm also aware that at the end of that last episode, I said that this week we were going to get into both who wrote the Bible and why we believe that it's authoritative for our lives. I do still plan to get into those topics, but I think taking in the big picture of the narrative will help us to understand those answers better when we get there. I'm also thinking that I might break up those two topics into two separate episodes, one about the Bible's authorship, and another one about its authority. On a personal note, I'd like to thank you for bearing with me as I figure out how to be a good podcast host. I'm still pretty new at this, and I'm learning, and I hope you're learning about the Bible and Christianity as I learn how to do podcasting, Either way, thank you for being on this journey with me, and for your continued listenership. Anyway, as we get started, I should clarify that even though this is a short summary, there's still a lot of ground to cover. The story that the Bible tells spans thousands of years of history, and it still manages to get into the details of the lives of individual players in that drama, so this episode is going to run somewhat longer than most of the ones that came before it. For that reason, I've taken the liberty of dividing it up into chapters, which will be listed by timestamp in the episode description. Now, I do that every week, but this week it may be particularly important because this way if you get interrupted and you need to come back later, you can always pick up more or less where you left off in the story. So, go grab some popcorn, and let's settle into what I believe is the ultimate story time. The Bible opens with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the first few words, we can already see that this is the story of the God who created everything that exists. It says that He made it all and that He called it very good. Now before you look around and say what in the world was He thinking, keep in mind that the universe has undergone a few changes since day one, some of them good, but most of them pretty tragic. The Bible says that God made everything perfectly beautiful and flawless, and then he created humanity in his image to be the caretakers of this new universe. Spoiler alert, we did not do a good job. Very early on, there was an incident involving a fruit tree in which we humans basically told God that we don't trust him, that we want to do things our own way, and it's been a mess ever since. You see, God had entrusted all of creation to Adam and Eve, who were our greatest grandparents, along with the rest of humanity by extension. So, 
when they rebelled against his authority, they corrupted everything that had previously been perfectly good. That one moment ruined the whole world, the heavens, and even us. That was when God launched his rescue plan. He promised that from this couple, someone would be born one day who could rid the world of evil and suffering. Unfortunately, it would take a very long time. Only a few generations after that, the Bible describes a world full of violence and wickedness. It says that people's hearts were constantly bent on evil. So God came to the conclusion that he would have to start with a clean slate by flooding the whole earth. God saved one man named Noah and his family, and he used them to repopulate the world. But that still didn't solve the root problem in mankind's hearts. So after that point, we see him taking a different tactic. God later chose to work through another man named Abram. Now, Abram was very old, and he had no children, which, especially in the ancient world, was seen as a devastating tragedy. God showed up with Abram one day and made him a promise. He said, I'm going to give you a son, and your descendants will be so numerous that they'll form a nation. I'll give you and them a bunch of land, and it will be theirs forever. All you have to do is trust me. And the crazy thing is that Abram did, and for that, God called him righteous. One guy out of millions of evil people gets called righteous, and it's not because of anything he did, it's because he trusted. God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. Abraham had multiple sons, but the one that God said would fulfill his promises was a boy named Isaac. Isaac, in turn, grew up and had twin sons named Jacob and Esau. God also changed Jacob's name to Israel, by the way, and through a convoluted series of events, he ended up having 12 sons of his own. So at this point, we have 12 great-grandsons of Abraham. One of them, a man named Joseph, didn't get along very well with his 11 brothers, so they sold him into slavery in Egypt, which is really messed up. Seriously. However, the story gets better. Joseph ended up as basically the prime minister of Egypt because God showed him that a famine was coming as well as how to prepare for it. Eventually, Joseph forgave his brothers and invited them and their wives and their children, collectively known as the children of Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, to move to Egypt where Joseph was so that their whole family could survive the famine. The children of Israel settled in Egypt, but over the course of the next few generations, they ended up becoming slaves, and they were subject to manual labor and genocide. So the Israelites cry out to God to deliver them from their oppressors, and to do that, God works through a man named Moses. By the way, it's worth mentioning that a large portion of the Bible consists of very personal stories of otherwise normal people that God calls to do amazing things. It contains the history of whole nations like the one I'm in the middle of telling you right now. But it still always comes down to people, real individuals, who have their own names and quirks and problems. From start to finish, you get the distinct impression that God isn't interested in superheroes. Instead, he works especially well through the unextraordinary. There's probably a good lesson there for all of us. Anyway, where was I? Moses. Here's the thing about Moses. He was an Israelite, but he was raised in the palace with the Egyptians. It was awkward. He knows he's an Israelite, so eventually he tries to do something about the injustice around him. But his way of helping was to murder an Egyptian slave driver 
and hide the body out in the desert. It's not super helpful because everyone finds out that Moses done it, and he becomes an outcast. While he's living in exile, for 40 years by the way, he finds work as a shepherd, he marries a nice lady, he has a couple of kids, and then he happens to meet God out in the desert in the form of a fiery shrub. God in the shrub tells Moses his destiny is to go back to Egypt and lead his people out to the land God had originally promised to his ancestor Abraham. And that's exactly what Moses does. He shows up in Egypt backed by the power of God Almighty. And through a series of increasingly impressive miracles that systematically make a mockery out of the pantheon of Egyptian gods and goddesses, he gets Pharaoh to let his people go. God then leads the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness that's between there and the promised land, and there he establishes a covenant with them, where he will be their only God for all time, and in turn they will be his chosen people. And then he gives them a set of laws that they're supposed to live by. Now some of it is pretty universal moral stuff like don't steal, but some of it is also pretty specific and seemingly random restrictions on everyday life like don't eat shrimp or don't plant two types of crops in the same field. This law also comes with a whole calendar of religious festivals to be observed, instructions for who should be a priest, what the priest should do, what they should wear, how and when to perform various sacrifices, even blueprints for building the portable temple that would serve as a focal point for their religious observances. It's a really comprehensive system. Next, what you would expect to happen is that God hands over the promised land to his people, and that's what he does, only they don't want it. The Israelites were intimidated by the strength of the people who already lived there, and rather than trusting God to help them, they decided they would rather go back to Egypt and work as slaves again. As a result, God led them around in the desert for 40 years so that their children could inherit the land in their place. That next generation, led by a man named Joshua who had been Moses' apprentice this whole time, they conquered the promised land, and then they divided it into territories corresponding to Jacob slash Israel's 12 sons and their descendants. Unfortunately, as soon as Joshua dies a few decades later, the people start to worship other gods, and they break the laws that they had received in the desert on the way out of Egypt. When that happened, God would allow Israel's enemies to come in and make their lives extremely uncomfortable. And they would cry out for a deliverer, and God would raise up a hero like Samson or Gideon to set them free. Then they would make all these promises never to do it again, which they would break, and that cycle repeated itself over and over and over for a few hundred years. That is, until the people decided that they wanted a king, just like all the other nations around them had kings. You see, up to this point, God had been their king, even if they had been bad at following him. By asking for a human king, they were basically rejecting God's rulership. Still, God granted their request. Through a prophet named Samuel, God appointed a man named Saul to be king over all of Israel. Now, Saul was a mighty warrior but it turns out he was a terrible king. He was paranoid, self-serving, cowardly, impatient, and worst of all, he had no real respect for God's way of doing things. He was a hypocrite. Meanwhile, God was preparing a young shepherd named David to become king in Saul's place. For reasons unknown, David was hated by his family, so they sent him out to take care of the sheep, and while he was out in the wilderness, 
he learned to love God above everything else. So when the neighboring Philistine nation invaded Israel, David had no problem facing their champion, a giant named Goliath, in hand-to-hand combat because he trusted in God. David killed Goliath and became an instant celebrity. Saul, being the politician that he was, publicly praised David, while secretly trying to kill him out of jealousy. Somehow Saul must have known that David was to be his replacement, and he wasn't giving up without a fight. David, on the other hand, never lifted a finger against his king. Instead, he chose to run away. After some time, though, Saul was killed in a battle against a foreign nation, and David became king, first over just the land of his tribe and his ancestors within the greater nation, but eventually he was king over all of Israel. David ruled as king for several decades, and there are a lot of stories about him in the Bible. In some of those stories, he gets it right, while other times he's a total screw-up. The one defining feature, though, is that he always comes back to loving and trusting God. David eventually has a few sons, several of whom kill each other in a power struggle, but his son Solomon is the one that's chosen to be king in his place. Solomon built a permanent temple for God, expanded Israel's borders, and wrote some books. Overall, he was a very good king and a man full of wisdom, though he also had his problems, and we can get into some of those in future episodes. So, David's generation is when Israel really became an established kingdom, and Solomon, his son, made it a power to be reckoned with. Solomon, in turn, also had a son, and he was named Rehoboam. To put it mildly, he was an idiot. When he became king in his father's place, He gathered all the wise men of Israel together and he asked, What kind of king should I be? Their answer was that he should establish his rule by going easy on the people and winning their hearts. His young friends, on the other hand, advised him to crack the whip and boast about how tough he was. He listened to his friends, and a civil war broke out. The rest of Israel became an independent kingdom to the north, while Rehoboam only retained control over the region of Judah to the south, and that was because that's where his grandfather David was from. For 200 plus years, the two kingdoms existed side by side, speaking the same language but ruled by different kings. Because the center of worship that God had chosen was in Jerusalem to the south, the northern kingdom set up idols in some of their key cities, most prominently in Samaria and the north drifted away from God until they were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. When that happened, they pretty much adopted the Assyrian culture and language. They intermarried with their conquerors and became a melting pot-style blended society. At this point, you may be thinking that the southern kingdom stayed faithful to God and had a very different outcome from the northern kingdom. I mean, they had the temple of God in their midst, their kings were direct descendants of David, the man after God's own heart. Surely they must have stayed on the right path as God's chosen nation. Well, it didn't work out that way. Judah's history wasn't all that different from that of Israel to the north. Their kings became corrupt and led the people into all sorts of idolatrous practices that God didn't endorse, up to and including human sacrifices made to the deities of neighboring nations. The corruption extended down through all levels of society, such that there was no more justice in the courts, the poor people were neglected, and the law was rejected by pretty much everyone from top to bottom. God sent prophets like Jeremiah to call the people to return to him and to live righteously. 
Others, like Elijah, would perform great signs and wonders intended to turn the hearts of the nation back to God. And sometimes it would work for a while, but never for more than a generation. There were also a few good kings in the lineage after Rehoboam, but most of them were terrible. One king might tear down all the pagan altars in the land, but then his son would always be worse than all the previous kings combined and come up with some new level of wickedness that they could revel in. So finally, in 586 BC, God said enough, and he brought in the Babylonians to conquer the southern kingdom. Almost everyone who survived was dragged away as a captive in Babylon and beyond. You see, the emperors of Babylon devised this brilliant system. When they would conquer a new region, they would displace everyone who lived there and give their land to loyal citizens, while the freshly conquered people would be scattered among the general population all over the empire so that they could learn to be good Babylonians. It was essentially forced assimilation through displacement, and it worked for countless cultures before and after. But unlike the northern kingdom before them, most of the Judeans who had been taken away to Babylon managed to keep their culture pretty much intact, with the help of more prophets and a strict adherence to the law of Moses. The trauma of being exiled was like a hot iron that branded one lesson into the minds of everyone who lived through it, that all the idolatry and lawlessness that they had tolerated until the exile was what brought them to this point, and that must never be allowed to happen again. In less than a century, the Babylonians were replaced by the Persians, whose system for treatment of conquered peoples was remarkably tolerant of their cultures and their religions. And so this new regime invited anyone who had both the desire and the means to make the journey to go back to the promised land. Some went back, while others stayed in the lands that they had been scattered to in the exile. The ones who went back faced some challenges when it came to rebuilding both the temple and the nation, as you would expect, but God continued to encourage them by sending prophets and leaders to guide them. Eventually they settled in, and Jewish culture and worship was once again established in the Promised Land. Now, for several centuries after those events, we don't have anything recorded in Scripture. It's not that nothing happened during that time period, it's just that nobody wrote in the Bible about it. What did happen was that the Persians were conquered by a guy you might have heard of named Alexander the Great, and when he died at the ripe old age of 33, his empire was divided among his four top generals. Their descendants fought petty wars with one another for a couple hundred years until the Romans stepped in and took everything. They took the region that had been the southern kingdom, Judah, and turned it into the Roman province called Judea. Half of the northern kingdom of Israel became Samaria, and north of that was the province of Galilee, which comes from a word meaning nations. Now remember that when the northern kingdom went into exile in 722 BC, they mixed their culture and religious practice with that of the Assyrians, while the Judahites came out of their exile committed to having only one god at pretty much any cost. So it's no surprise that they absolutely hated each other's guts. Galilee, on the other hand, came under the rulership of Judea, so they tended to be faithfully Jewish, but they also had a lot of non-Jews living there, so as a region they were viewed as kinda just Jewish enough to be affiliated with Judean high society, but definitely still less than. To get a picture of the intensity of how these groups felt about each other, imagine that Judea was the firstborn son who grew up and became a nice respectable doctor, and Galilee was more like the younger brother who didn't finish college 
but he's still a decent guy who takes care of his family however he can. Meanwhile, Samaria would be like the half-brother who was disowned from the family after he started using and selling methamphetamine. Now imagine that these three brothers lived side by side, on the same block of the same street in the same city, and just to keep things really interesting, the drug-dealing brother lives in the middle house, between the other two. In a word, what we're talking about is drama. Lots of drama. On top of that, there was also the Roman Empire. Roman law was great if you were a citizen, but most people living in the backwater provinces like Judea and Samaria didn't have citizenship. They had close to zero rights, and they were taxed beyond their means, while the Roman authorities and military held absolute power over their lives. Combine that with the fact that these were Gentiles, outsiders who had no respect for the God of Israel, and what you've got is a very tense socio-political situation. Most of the time, Rome would just let the Judeans have their own customs so long as they paid their taxes and stayed out of the way. But every couple generations, Rome would show up and demand worship for their gods, under penalty of death, and then that would boil over into intense violence. The final factor to keep in mind was that during this period, there was a lot of growing awareness throughout the whole region of all the promises God had made to his people in scripture that he would deliver them from their oppressors, that the promised land would always be theirs, and that one of David's descendants would be king on the throne forever. All those promises were collected and repeated together, and they formed a picture of this future deliverer and savior that they called Messiah, which means the anointed one, chosen by God. That promise, in this context, is where the next part of our story begins. In a village called Nazareth, which is up in Galilee, there was a carpenter named Joseph, who was engaged to a young woman named Mary. Now these were not influential people, except that Joseph did happen to be a descendant of King David from a thousand years beforehand. So he had a little bit of royal blood. While Mary was related to the family of priests going all the way back up to Moses' brother Aaron, some 1,400-ish years beforehand. Still, what we have here is an obscure blue-collar worker and his fiancée. Seemingly nobody special until, at some point during their engagement, when God sent angels to tell them, first of all, that Mary was pregnant, which comes as a big surprise to both of them. And the second thing the angels say is that the baby is God's son, and that they should name him Jesus, which means God is salvation. Now, this is a mind-shattering development in God's plan to rescue humanity. In hindsight, we can easily see how it makes sense for God to become a human because it allows him to save us by being down here in the dirt with us. But the religious teachers of that time were convinced that God would choose an ordinary human man to be the Messiah, and that he would be a military leader who could free them from the bondage of Rome. They definitely didn't picture the Messiah as God, and they couldn't imagine God coming in the flesh, being born as a human. And yet, that's what happened. Joseph and Mary raised the Son of God as if he was their kid. They changed his diaper, he lost a few teeth, and he learned to follow the laws and customs of his people. After a few decades, the kid is all grown up, and he becomes a rabbi. Jesus picked twelve people to be his disciples, his apprentices, and they went everywhere with him as he taught with a new sense of authority on what Moses and David and the other prophets had written. He also performed miracles. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. 
and he even raised the dead. If you do that enough, you develop quite a following, so there were thousands who came from all over to hear this Nazarene of all people teach, and to marvel at the miracles he performed. A lot of modern portrayals frame Jesus as a kind of hippie do-gooder, who got along with everyone and only taught that they should be nice to each other. But the reality is that Jesus was incredibly controversial. Yes, he taught a form of pacifism, and yes, loving others was a primary point of his message. But the summary the Bible gives of his teaching is that the kingdom of God is at hand. He preached mercy and judgment, and he wasn't afraid to point out people's sin when necessary. Jesus was especially critical of the religious and political leadership in Jerusalem, rebuking them for their hypocrisy and their lack of compassion. That mixed with jealousy regarding his growing popularity, plus the somewhat legitimate fear that the Romans might misinterpret this new movement as a revolutionary uprising and would respond with deadly force, all of that led the Jewish religious leaders to ask the Roman governor to have Jesus arrested and executed, which he did, and he was. I'm not going to get into all the gory details of what a crucifixion entailed, other than to say that Rome had spent several centuries perfecting their process for torturing someone to death, and it was remarkably effective. When the Roman Empire wanted someone dead, they didn't just die. They wished they would die a lot faster. This was a heinous way to go. Even in all the brutality of ancient Roman society, crucifixion was recognized as an exceptional form of punishment, deserved only by the worst of the worst. The word excruciating, in English, even means from the cross, because they had to invent a new term to describe the level of pain it could produce. Jesus went through all of that. He died, and he was buried. Meanwhile, his followers scattered. They had hoped that this was the Messiah that he would fulfill all the promises God had made throughout the generations, that a new era would dawn and that they would finally be free from Roman oppression. Instead, the very systems that they thought Jesus would conquer ended up putting him to death for a few days. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he really is the Messiah and the Son of God after all, that he is the one who has all power and authority to defeat every form of evil darkness, injustice, disease, even death itself. Because if you can defeat death, everything else is kind of not that big of a deal to you. After his resurrection, Jesus spent the next few weeks with his followers, both so that they could see him alive, and also so that he could give them further instructions. After that, he ascended into heaven with a promise that he would return one day. The instructions Jesus left basically said that his followers should do what he did, perform miracles, teach what he taught, live like he lived, and recruit and teach other people to do the same until the whole world is given that opportunity. Before doing that, though, his followers were told to wait in Jerusalem for God to empower them by sending his spirit to live in them. Then and only then could they go out and do all the stuff that Jesus commanded. A little more than a hundred of them stuck around until the holiday called Pentecost, which was a festival in their calendar commemorating the time of Moses when God gave the law to their ancestors in the wilderness after bringing them out of Egypt. On that day, God poured out his spirit on those who had waited. The original Pentecost in the time of Moses was the event that established the Israelites as God's people. 
it was the beginning of a covenant between him and them. In this new Pentecost, God established a new people once again, but instead of giving us a set of commandments to follow, he gave us himself, his spirit, to dwell within us and among us. The prophets had been foretelling this event for hundreds of years, and it finally happened. The community that was established at Pentecost from these few hundreds then became a few thousand, and it kept growing. At first, it didn't go much farther than the outskirts of Judea. But then they started to experience violent persecution from the religious leaders who had rejected Jesus, and that caused most of the early Christians to scatter to the neighboring cities and provinces, where they set up their own little communities. Eventually, God took hold of one of the chief persecutors, a man named Saul. At least that was his name in Aramaic. In Greek, he would go by Paul, which is the name that he's mostly known by today. At first, Paul had violently opposed Christianity, but he ended up becoming one of its biggest supporters. He eventually made it his mission to spread the message of Jesus throughout the world, and for the next several decades, he traveled around the Roman Empire, establishing communities of faith in Jesus in every city that he visited. He and some of the other early Christians also wrote letters to one another to clarify their doctrine, to give advice based on the teachings of Jesus, and to encourage each other to stand firm and keep the faith. We have several of those letters. In fact, they make up an entire section of the Bible we have today. One last thing about the story that the Bible tells us is that it isn't over. A lot of the narrative sections about Jesus and his followers tend to trail off without any sense of closure. Some parts even have impressive cliffhangers, and I think it's written that way on purpose, to give us a sense that the story is still going on, and that we're very much a part of it. So many of the promises and prophecies listed in the Bible have taken place, but a lot of them still haven't yet. Most importantly, the one about Jesus coming back to defeat darkness and death once and for all, and establish his everlasting kingdom. We're still waiting expectantly for that to happen while doing our best to live according to the teachings found in this book and to know and worship the God it describes. And that's where the story ends for now. I know I always end these episodes by thanking you, the audience, for listening, but I especially mean that this time. It's been a long episode, and I'm deeply grateful and honored for those of you who have made it all the way through. Thank you, from the bottom of my heart, for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.